I'm going to let you behind the curtain a little bit. The reason we do introductions uh, to sermons is because we're told that people aren't ready to listen right away. They need to get kind of lulled in. Uh, that's, that's, that's what they say. Um, this morning, I'm going to start, uh, by way of introduction, with just a story out of the Bible. And what I hope is, is that as you listen, um, you just allow your spirit to prepare you to approach the Word a little, little later on in the message. So, with that said, uh, I'm going to pick up the story in Egypt. Uh, many of you are familiar with the story. That uh, the, at one point, the, the Hebrew people were in Egypt... And they were under the oppression of the Egyptian ruler. They had become very numerous, and had become, and that had become a passive threat to the Pharaoh. And so, uh, he had begun to oppress them and to enslave them and and to exterminate them at some level. And the Lord heard the cry of the Hebrew people. He remembered his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he came and he rescued his people from Egypt. He. Uh, toppled the Egyptian uh, kingdom uh, in a way, and he brought his people across the Red Sea, and he began to make the people a people of his own. It's one of the first times in Scripture that um, the God of a people become to embrace that in the Word, of a God who's guiding his people. And he does this in a lot of ways. He feeds them. He gives them water to drink. He leads them through the desert. He protects them, and he gives them truth, uh, and not truth in the sense of just a basket full of rules that have to be followed, but more in the sense of he gives them truth and laws and, and rules and to the degree that he's trying to bring, them, bring their souls out of a place of oppression as well. So he doesn't want just their bodies to be free, but more importantly, he wants their souls to be free. And the laws of God are simply the rules of the universe. God is explaining through his law how things work, how he made things to work. And he's explaining those things to his people through the written laws. And he does another thing for the people. He makes promises with them. He enters into an agreement with them. And in the agreement, this is what he promises the Hebrew people. He says, I will love you. Uh, Your life will be blessed. There'll be provision, there'll be land, there will be peace uh, for generations, not just now, but for generations. I'm going to bless you. And in return, the people said this to the Lord. They said, uh, as they're part of, of the covenant, they said, we will try to live a life that is reflective of you. That's what the covenant is about. The covenant is a God who takes the onus of preserving life and peace and wholeness. And the people who say, "Uh, Lord, we're going to spend our life trying to reflect you, trying to look like you, trying to be, be the goodness that you are, trying to do those things. And that was the covenant that the people and God entered into at the mountain of God. But as time went on, this... uh, the side of the agreement for the people became too difficult for them to bear. The yoke of trying to reflect God became too much, more than they thought they bargained for, in fact. And, and so they began to adopt a different kind of attitude. They began to be unsatisfied with um, a God who was so, so holy, 
Because reflecting a holy God is so much more difficult. And so you began to see things surfacing in the life of the Hebrew people where they were looking for a type of God, making a type of God that is a less holy, more earthly, more material, more relatable, more understandable, more bounded, more uh, connected to the senses of this world, more um, limited. Rather than wanting a God who, who did all these great things but was this great God, they were, they'd be, you, they, out of them came a satisfaction with kind of the God of an idol, a God who simply provides certain things for them as a, as a course of transaction. We give this to this God and he feeds us. We give this and he brings rain. We do this and he makes produce. That's what their heart was wanting, was a transactional kind of God. Can't we just have that? Well, because of this, they broke the covenant, and out of that, they broke fellowship with the Lord. And uh, they did it over this phrase. They said, we just want to do what seems right in our own eyes. Can't we just do what seems right in our own eyes? And so they did. And what happened is the Lord backed away. They broke fellowship, and the Lord backed away, and the consequences of their poor decisions and their sin began to creep up around them and cause hardship in their lives. And then they would turn to the Lord and say, we're sorry for what we've done. And the Lord, because he's patient and he's gracious and he's full of mercy, responded to their repentance and came back and established peace for them. And then they would fall away again, but then the Lord would return to them because he's patient and full of mercy. He brought them a deliverer and gave them peace. And this would happen again and again and again and again for hundreds of years. And each time it seemed as though the basis point of the people was farther away from God. Each time that they were calling to God, it was a little harder for the Lord to hear them because they were so far away. And before long, and this is a condition that happens with people, before long they were so far away from the Lord that they, were, they had forgotten he was big at all. And in fact, rather than crying out to him in repentance for their hardship, they had begun to think of their hardship as evidence that he was not strong. The people around us are oppressing us because their God is stronger than our God, is what they begin to think. That our God is somehow weak or impotent or asleep or uncaring. That's what ended up happening is that the consequences around them, they began to point at the Lord saying, this is evidence that, you, that you're not who you said you were. God was not enough for them. And this is how they said that to the Lord. They went to the Lord and they said, it is not enough um, that you rule over us uh, we want a king. That's what they said. They said, give us a king. Which if you translate it in the Lord's ears is, you are not enough. You don't care for what we care about. You don't fight for us the way we want. Your interests and our interests are different. That's why they wanted a king. They wanted a king because his interests would be their interests. The Lord turned to Samuel, the prophet at the time, and he said to them, he said to Samuel, they have rejected me as God when they asked for a king. 
Well, you would expect a just God to walk away from a people like that. That seems right. But he doesn't do that. God doesn't do that because even though he's just, he's patient and full of mercy and grace, isn't he? And so instead of walking away from the people when they asked for a king, he said, I'll give you a king. Here's exactly what you want. And then he did something above and beyond that. He said, I am going to walk beside the kings. As much as they're willing, I'll be beside the kings. And with numerous kings, he would say things like, if you are careful to follow my laws and my statutes and obey my commandments and follow after me, then I will bless your throne and I will bless your kingdom and I will make sure that kings come after you from your own flesh and blood and your kingdom will reign and it will have an ever, a long reign from generation to generation, all you have to do is respond to me in the covenantal way that we agreed upon at the mountain when I rescued you from Egypt. And the kings pretty much did what they wanted. But God was faithful, and God was particularly faithful when he found a king who was faithful. And when he came to David, David, when David became king, David reflected what the word says is a heart after the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. What David's heart expressed was, I desire to reflect God in my life. I want to do what he wants me to do. I'm not after my interests. My interest is in the will of God being played out in my life. And God saw that, and God came to him, and God made a special promise with David. God said, I see you, I see your heart for me, and I want to bless you. He said, David, the kingship of Judah will always be from your throne. Your throne, the line of David, will continue forever. And he said, and furthermore, there's a king coming from your own flesh and blood who will establish a kingdom on earth that will reign forever because of your faithfulness to me. That is God's promise to David and his people. Now we can open the word. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, please. It's page 669, if you're using a Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to keep that as a gift. It matters how we begin a story. And the four Gospels start, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each start very, very differently. Matthew, Matthew starts in a, in a peculiar way. There's only two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that even talk about the advent of Christ, the way that we celebrate him at Christmas. But Matthew begins in a particular way. He has a, a special perspective in his book that he's trying, trying to get at. He, he has in his mind this covenant that God made with David, which by the time that the Jews had gotten to uh, the arrival of Christ, by the time Matthew's writing, the Davidic covenant, which is what they came to know it as, the Davidic covenant had come to define not just their expectation that there would be a king, but also the prophets had spoken into it. And so now that there was, there was, there was an idea that not only would David have a king who would establish a kingdom that would be forever, but that the Messiah that God had promised would be that very same king. That's coming out of the prophets and of what God had said to David. And so when Matthew begins his gospel, 
He wants to set up for us this idea that the Christ, the Messiah who has come, is in fact the king that God had spoken about of the line of David who is establishing his king forever. That's what, that's what Matthew's trying to do, not just in Matthew 1 with this genealogy, but Matthew 1, 2, and all the way to the baptism of the Christ. Is he's trying to demonstrate that, that Jesus is in fact a king. He's a king who's coming. That, that, that's where we get the name of the sermon series. There's a Greek word, the word is parousia, and it's used in the New Testament uh, often. Most of the time that it's used, it's used uh, in response to the arrival of someone. That's what parousia means. It means the arrival of someone. But it's more specific than simply the arrival. It has a mood about it. Parousia means the arrival of a royal party, the arrival of a king. So when we speak about the second coming, or when you read about the return of Christ and Peter on Revelation, that's coming out as the parousia of Christ. That Jesus isn't simply coming, and Jesus is not simply a savior, though that is certainly enough. Jesus is a king. He's a king who's coming. And this, this, this opening section of Matthew is our opportunity as a church to embrace the arrival of a king into the lives of mankind. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, guide us now as we read your word. Father, I pray your spirit would uh, fall um, upon receptive hearts and ears and minds. Lord, I pray for uh, humility um, that we might... uh, when we see your truth, have the willingness to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look at me real quick. Look, not look at me, look with me. (laughs) Don't look at me. Look with me very quickly at the genealogy. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, But I do want to call just a a, a little attention to it. The purpose of the genealogy is, is fairly simple. There's multiple secondary purposes, but the primary purpose of the genealogy is to demonstrate that Jesus, the son of Joseph, is also at some distant expanse of time the son of David. That's what's being established right up front in Matthew. Matthew is saying that Jesus Christ fits the promise that was made to David, that he's in the line of David and therefore has legal claim to the role of Messiah as king of the Jews. That's what's happening here. And so you have, you have in verse 6, the, the placement of David within the general line of the Hebrew people. And then it follows king after king from verse 6. And it, it skips some. Matthew's being very eloquent. This is, this is a very elegant uh, section of scripture uh, um, as far as how it's arranged. But he finally arrives at the end at Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And we should have, there should be no doubt for, and by the way, Hebrew people knew this. These genealogies were kept on reference in libraries. In fact, Herod the Great, who was not a Jew, was so bothered by the fact that he did not have a genealogy that could be traced back into Jewish, that he had the, the, the data from the libraries expunged and destroyed. 
So genealogies were very important to the Hebrew people to trace these ideas back. And Matthew's showing right up front that Jesus Christ is related to David and therefore has legal claim and legal status underneath this promise. That's before us, but, but, but here, here's, a, here's another idea that shows up right after it. Let's read verses 18 to the end of the chapter. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now that's the account of the birth in Matthew, which is strange from a number of levels. It's strange from the first perspective that Mary has no acting role in this story. This is a Mary story. Where's the stable? Where's... The donkey, where's, you know, Elizabeth, where's... None of that's here. It's, it's very flat and very just matter-of-factly, and it's from the perspective of Joseph. That's the first thing that's a little interesting, is it certainly Matthew's trying to demonstrate something important because there's so much other things that could have been said. It's, it's a better story in another gospel. But he's very simple and very flat with his account. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is where it arrives. It arrives immediately after this massive genealogy that says that Jesus is is the distant son of David through Joseph. And then Matthew turns right around and in a few verses later makes it painfully clear to us that Jesus is not the son of Joseph. So on one hand... Matthew says Jesus has legal claim on the throne because he comes from the line of Joseph who came from the line of David. And then he turns right around and goes, oh, by the way, he isn't actually Joseph's. He's just legally Joseph's. Joseph is his adoptive father. I mean, the text is very clear about it. Notice how the text is arranged. The first thing we find for a skeptical reader or for someone who is hearing the story is that when Joseph finds out that his betrothed fiancé is pregnant... He's going to have a divorce, which is what men do when their girlfriend is pregnant. That's what's happening. He's laying it out very clearly. He's saying, obviously, this is not Joseph's. He finds out that his betrothed wife-to-be is pregnant, and that becomes a device of separation, not of coming together. If she had been pregnant and he had, they had rushed to Vegas... Well, it'd be a little hard to explain that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. 
But, but, but the Bible shows you that, that he was bothered. But that was, a, that was an issue of contention in his own spirit. And then you see the response of God. That God comes to him and says, Listen, this was not done by some other man. This was a work of the Holy Spirit that's in her. Don't hold it against her. Be with her. And then you see Joseph's response, which is he takes her as his own wife, but he does not lay with her until she had given birth. Do you see what the writer is trying to do? He's trying to say it wasn't Joseph's. There's no way that it's Joseph's. Joseph's did, was not the source of this child. Genealogy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom through Joseph. Very next verse. Jesus is not Joseph's. There's this, this idea, this tension in the word that Jesus is, he's fully man, but he's not really holy man. He's not of man. He's legally man. He's technically man. He's substantively man. He's that word man. <laughs> Good grief. But he's not entirely like us either. He has a different genealogy. That's what Matthew's saying. Jesus actually has a different genealogy, and it, it goes this way. God is the father of Jesus. That's his genealogy. God is the father of Jesus. Christ has a claim to a greater throne than the throne of David. That's what's being implied here. It's one thing to say Christ, the Christ, the Jesus, the anointed one, has the claim to the throne of David. Matthew's coming in on top of that and saying, legally he does. But, physically, spiritually, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, has a claim on the throne of God. That's what's happening here in the text. Matthew is trying to do this. Matthew, as he's discussing the parousia of Christ, the coming of the king, what he's doing is he's crashing into man the kingdom of God. That when mankind said to God, you are not enough. You're not enough for us. Can't you just give us a king? What the Lord did is he backed away, he gave them what he wants, and now God is coming back in. He's substituting a kingdom back in. This is a replacement kingdom that's happening here for these people. This is what is meant by the prophet's words. And the virgin will be a child and she will give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has entered into the kingdom of man for the purpose of their salvation. These words, by the way, of Isaiah came to one of the kings of Judah. King Ahaz. He's in the genealogy. I think he's the ninth verse. Or the sixth verse. Ninth verse. That's where Isaiah begins to walk the earth and he begins to speak into the lives of the kings. Isaiah speaks those words to King Ahaz. And not as some kind, necessarily some kind gift. King Ahaz was not a very good king. In fact, he was a bad king. In fact, he was a terrible king. He was a wicked king. He was one of the worst kings that Judah has ever known. That's who Ahaz was. Ahaz had no time for God. He didn't like God. He didn't like the worship of God. He tampered with it. He shut it down. He replaced it. 
And that is the man who received these words. This is how, this is how it went. This is in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah. You know something's important when it shows up like that. Ahaz, who is the rotten, wicked king of Judah, he's disobedient in every way that you can imagine. And as a result of that, the Lord allows the nations around Judah to rise up and begin to throw off the yoke of control that Judah had enjoyed for so many years. And so during the reign of Ahaz, his kingdom shrinks and is whittled down from all quadrants. People are taking back their land from Judah. Which, of course, he blames on God. Certainly God is not strong enough. God is not enough. Otherwise, why would his land be taken? And when we arrive in the seventh chapter of Isaiah, the kingdom has been whittled down. And in fact, the kingdom of Aram, which is headquartered in Damascus, the kingdom of Aram has come down to conquer Jerusalem. And allied to Aram are the ten other tribes of Israel. And so the own brethren of Judah is surrounding the city to topple it, to take it out and to replace its king. They're setting out and they're going to replace the person on the throne of Judah with a king of their own choosing. The line of David is in threat. And King Ahaz is in the city. He's held up in the city with his officials. They're up, they're looking out, they're trying to make plans and the word of God says that they, they trembled with fear like a tree does when the wind passes through it. That is, that's Ahaz when God says to Isaiah, Go see him. And so Isaiah gets up, takes his son, and they go to see the king. And when he goes to the king, these are the words that the Lord puts in his mouth. First of all, he warns the king to remain faithful. He says, God is going to save you. He says, don't be worried about the Arameans and the Israelites. God will save Judah. Don't worry about them. But he, he warns them at the end, hold fast to your faith. Hold on to your faith because it matters right now. And then the God understands that how is Ahaz going to believe this man Isaiah? So he permits Isaiah to say these things. He says to the king Ahaz, he says, ask of me. These are the words of the Lord. Ask of me any sign you want, whether the deepest of depths or the highest of heights, and I will do it. I'll validate myself right in front of you, Ahaz. I will validate the power of the almighty God, the God who brought you out of Egypt, the God who toppled the Egyptian government, the God who parted the sea and made the sun stand in the sky and let manna come down and the walls of Jericho fall and the Jordan to be opened. All of these things. This God says, you pick a sign and I'll do it. And you know what Ahaz says? No. No thanks. I will not do it. And he says this, and it sounds peculiar. He says, I will not test this God. Now to us, that sounds a little bit reverent. Like, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test, right? But if you don't know Ahaz, this is a a trippy verse. But if you read the text about Ahaz, you begin to see who he really was. Ahaz was the kind of man who worshipped whatever or whoever would change his, like 
his circumstances. That's who Ahaz's God was. Is whatever God could exhibit the most power to alter his circumstances, that's who Ahab would wor- Ahaz would worship. Ahaz himself grabbed his own sons and threw them in the fire to sacrifice them to gods. He set up bales all through the city. He worshipped almost every god you could think of. Why? Because all around Judah, these people with their gods were rising up and oppressing Judah. And so in his mind, he was thinking, my God is impotent. My God is not enough. But look at all these gods. You know what he actually did? He actually went to the capital of the, the Arameans, to Damascus, the very people oppressing him. He went to their capital, went into their temple, saw the mighty altar of their God, who is certainly a strong and mighty God because they've surrounded Judah. And he took exact dimensions of this altar. And he emailed him back to Judah. And he said, I'm coming back. And when I arrive, I want an exact replica of the altar to the gods of the Arameans built and sitting smack dab in the middle of the temple of God. He grabbed this thing. He grabbed this altar right here. And he shoved it in the corner of the room. And he put the Aramean altar in the temple of God. And he grabbed every artifact and device that would lead people to repentance that God had instituted. The sacrificial washing and the issues of purification. All the items and instruments of worship that told the Jewish people, the issue is your soul. And he put them outside the temple. He grabbed this altar and shoved it over there. He stuck the Aramee in there and he said he erased any idea that religion is about the condition of your soul. You know what he said? He said, we'll use, this, we'll use the Aramean one for sacrifice. We'll, we'll transact with that God because he gives people what they want. He's enough. And we'll use that tiny altar in the corner when we have a question. That's what he says. That's why he said, no, I will not ask for a sign because the God of the Jews is a nobody to Ahaz. He is not enough. If he were, why would his life be in crisis? Why would the kingdom be failing and the kings be failing and the land be falling and the walls and the towers be crumbling if God was enough? He's not enough and I will not test him, says Ahaz. And we do this. This is exactly how we behave. That's the kind of God we want, isn't it? Is a transactional God who gives us services. Not worship services. Service. We commit something, he gives us something. We have a problem, he solves a problem. We have a need, he solves a need. That's the kind of God that many of, many of us have come to worship. Or in the backwaters of our mind and soul, that's the kind of God that we desire. It's a God who, who is concerned ultimately about your physical circumstances. And he's wrapped, he's wrapped up making sure that your physical circumstances are better. That's the kind of God that we want to worship. And when our circumstances get worse, or when they do not change we begin to go through the crisis of why. why. Why am I suffering? Why, you know, he has a good job. Why don't I have a good job? She did this. He drives that. 
Look how good she looks. Look how bad I look. Look, look, he's smart and I'm dumb. And all of these things, right? We begin to line up all of our circumstantial inadequacies, our long Christmas list of things I would want if God actually gave us stuff, right? That's what we do. And when God is silent, these questions can take on a different kind of mood. Right? There's an honest way to say, Lord, why is my life crumbling? There's an honest, healthy way of crawling out why. There's also a way of being in contempt of court. With the same question. It's also another way of saying to God, you are not enough. And shoving his altar off into the corner and going to find whatever's working for the other people. What's working for them? And stick that in the middle of your life, and then to worship at the altar of that. Here's my question. Is this enough for you? The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Is it enough? You have a long list of things you want for Christmas. I mean, your life. right? Is this enough? Because I can tell you, God does miracles, but by and large, you're going to leave here with the same problems you walked in here at. Your marriage is not improving right now, for the most part. Maybe, I hope it is, miraculously. I'm just saying, if I'm a betting man, the discontent will be exactly the same when you leave as when you came in. You're no prettier. Nobody's changing on me. All right? You're not smarter. You're not getting smarter all the time. You're the same person leaving, the same problems. Same financial issues, the same interpersonal issues, the same I don't like my job, my car's dumpy, I don't like what's going on, I'm unsatisfied. All the same issues of circumstantial satisfaction that you drug in here this morning, you're leaving with them. Because that is not the kind of God we worship. We do not worship a God of circumstances. We worship a God that changes who we are. Is that enough? That's the question. Today when we do the Lord's Supper, is it enough? If it's not enough, then don't take it. Jesus Christ laid his life down so that you might enjoy full fellowship with the almighty God who made heaven and earth. And you want to look better? How about a God who says, I made you. You look just fine. Is that enough? You want more money? How about a God who says, I am sufficient, and I want everything you have anyway? Is that enough? You want to be smarter. How about a God who says, be humble, and wisdom comes through that? Is that enough? For Ahaz, it was not enough. He wants a circumstantial deity who gives him what he wants. And when Isaiah heard that, this is the words of God that spoke out of his mouth. Is it not enough that you test the patience of man, that you must also come and test the patience of God? See, this will be a sign to you. A virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is the issue. At this time in Ahaz, the kingship is failing, the king is failing, and God steps in and says, I'm done. I am now going to enter back into this kingship and take it back for myself. 
This idea of men following after the things of men, of the material world, attaching our attentions and us drawing and worrying about our own special interests and caring about the things we care about. God has said, enough of that. I'm going to make my new kingdom. I'm going to bring it and I'm going to insert it back into the people with God himself. Is that enough? I'll close with this. When I was a kid, I'm still like this, but I'll blame it on my kiddom because it's past, but it isn't. I was a big Christmas gift kid. I, I memorized the Sears catalog toy section in June. I had it memorized. I had dimensions of toys memorized so that I could just shake the box and know. And I'm not kidding. And I had this long list of things because I am a possession-oriented human and as many of us are, and I always thought in my mind, when I get to Christmas and I get that thing, that thing will make me happy, which invariably it didn't, because I either A, did not get it, or B, it's not nearly as good as a commercial. (laughs) And so what ended up happening is, I was sitting at Christmas with my family, my parents who conceived and bore me in love, who stayed together and raised me in the word, who educated me and fed me and clothed me and supported me and prayed for me and forgave me. And I'm in that room in a nest of my own dissatisfaction because I did not get what I want for Christmas. Is Jesus enough? Or do you have a long list? What does he have to do for you? Can his death and resurrection take center stage? Can the altar sit here for you? And can you come to it with an attitude of satisfaction? I'm not saying he's going to make your life perfect. He won't. But he will make you perfect when the time comes. 